0: Uh, We are studying the book of Exodus, and we continue our study as we come to Exodus chapter 4. And so let's go before the Lord one more time to ask His blessing on His Word. Please pray with me. Lord, we come now to approach Your Word, a Word that is living and active. And so, Lord, we pray that by Your Spirit that You attend to it this morning. Lord, we are a forgetful people. And so we need to be reminded this morning of the glorious truths of the gospel. So would you illumine our hearts this morning to be able to receive those and not merely hear them, but to have them change us at our soul's core. That we might see you in greater light of your love for us in Christ. And we might leave this place differently from which we came. Holy Spirit, we're dependent upon you to come now. We pray that you would do so for your needy people here. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, back in early 2000s there was a band called 5 for fighting and they wrote a song about Superman. And the song is from Superman's perspective about how Superman is not so super as everyone thinks that he is. And it's about Superman trying to figure out himself who he really is with all his faults and his weaknesses. Uh, that others don't see, his doubts that he has. And one of the lines in the song goes like this. It says, I'm only a man in a silly red sheet, digging for kryptonite on this one-way street. I'm only a man in a funny red sheet, looking for special things inside of me. This is the man of steel, right? Recognizing his inadequacies and his insufficiencies to feel like he's up for the task at hand he feels like, in a sense, that he's just playing dress-up, that he's a fraud. And deep down, he wants to feel special, but he's not quite sure that he really is special. Is that not how most of us feel on a regular basis? You know, there's this sense in which we're afraid of being found out for who we really are. Behind the masks that we put on, behind the facade that we put on in public. Because we're acutely aware of our past and our present failures and the weaknesses that plague us every day of our lives. This was Moses' feeling as well. See, Moses was having a difficult time believing that God was really going to go with him and accomplish everything that he said he was going to accomplish through him. And we, like Moses, we often think that God is asking too much of us. And many of us know this very well. As we think, Lord, I don't think I can go on feeling this way physically anymore. I don't think that I have enough to face the day again with the trial that you've placed before me. I don't think I can endure the stresses of my job. I can't go home and again have to engage in conflict with my spouse or my children. What we have to remember is that God intentionally made each one of us weaknesses, insufficiencies, and all. The things that we despise about ourselves and hate about ourselves so often. This morning, there's simply two points that I want us to investigate here from chapter 4 in Exodus. And the first is this God calls, saves, and uses inadequate people by displaying his power. Through their obedience that flows from faith. God calls, saves, and uses inadequate people by displaying His power through their obedience that flows from faith. And then, secondly, God's covenant love for His people compels Him to go to great lengths to rescue them. Now, last week we saw how Moses, who's now 80 years old, is not the bold, risky, brash, gifted man as he was in his 40s from Exodus 2 that we read. He's kind of mellowed out. He's, he's content being a shepherd of his father-in-law Jethro's flock. Content to be by himself, not in the limelight. Well, God comes to Moses in the burning bush and he says, I've got a mission for you and you're the man for the mission, Moses. You're going to go and you're going to help free my people Israel from slavery in Egypt. But Moses protests this idea that he's capable and up for the task. And what we see in this passage, but also in the, throughout the scriptures, is that God speaks and gives his word before he acts and displays his power. See, in Exodus 3 and in our chapter here in Exodus 4, God speaks his word and his plan to Moses to use him in order to display his power in order to free his people from Egypt. And what we see is that God is after The obedience of his children that flows out of faith in himself in order to manifest his power to the nations. God's made it known to Moses that he's heard his people's cry and he's coming to their rescue and he's going to save them from the hand of Pharaoh. And Moses again begins to express this doubt in chapter 3. And God tells him, he says, When you go before Pharaoh, I'm going to be with you, Moses. And then in verse 17 of chapter 3, he tells Moses, he said, Tell the people of Israel, the elders, tell them, I promise I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt into a land flowing with milk and honey. God's promised success in this mission that he's calling Moses to. Victory is certain. But Moses responds with fear and with doubts once more. In verse 1 of our text, he's talking about the elder, and he says, God, what if the elders don't believe me? See, Moses was born, he was a Hebrew, but yet he was raised and had his education in Pharaoh's household. So he doesn't think that either camp is really going to take his word, especially Israel. But what Moses is doing is he's trying to justify his disobedience to the mission that God's calling him to. See, after God has laid out this plan, how it's all going to unfold, how it's all going to go, Moses brings up his past. His past as a reason why God's plan is not going to work and why he is not the man for the mission. But how often do we do the very same thing when God calls us to certain tasks? So like Moses, we struggle with using our past as a reason not to be obedient to God in the present. We think, oh, people know my past. They know some of the things that I've done. I'm disqualified from being used by God in the lives of other people. And we believe that because we may have failed royally that we've lost some credibility to speak about this Savior that we profess and proclaim faith in. You know, I've I've failed in teaching my kids the scriptures, modeling godly character to them, I can't just start doing it now that they're teenagers or even now as they're young adults. They're going to say I'm a hypocrite. I can't go to my next door neighbor and share the gospel with them. They sometimes see and hear how I treat and speak to my spouse and my, my children. I don't have any credibility with them. They're not going to become a Christian because of the words that I say that God might use because they know who I am. And so like Moses, we fear that we're going to fail because of our weaknesses in our past. And so we don't trust God to overcome those weaknesses with his own strength. But God's commanding Moses, and he's commanding us this morning, stop making it about us. It's about God's power and his ability, not our lack of power and our inability. See, Moses is beating himself up of what he feels like he lacks. He lacks. And some of us here this morning are experts at beating ourselves up over what we're not. And we're constantly comparing ourselves with everyone else. I'm not as smart as they are. I'm not as gifted in speaking as they are. I don't have the resources that they have. So we go fishing either for flattering words that people say to us that hopefully, even just for a moment, boost our self-esteem. Or we go to the opposite extreme, And we seek people to validate that we really are as bad as we think that we are. But notice that God doesn't enter into this self-pity of Moses. No, God actually provides Moses exactly what he needs. He provides him with himself. See, God meets Moses in his doubts and in his fears. And he handles every one of Moses' objectives. Because Moses keeps lobbing him up at God. I can't do it because of this and that. And God goes, no problem, I've got it, I can handle it. And so God patiently provides Moses in his weakness. He gives him three signs to take before the elders and before Pharaoh ultimately. And these three signs are not magic tricks that God was giving Moses to wow the people. These three signs actually were saying something about God and his character. And they were pointing to something greater than the signs themselves. And all three of these signs were related specifically to the culture in Egypt. See, the first sign that God gives Moses, he says, take your staff and throw it on the ground. So Moses throws his staff on the ground, and it turns into a snake. And Moses bolts immediately. And now we have to understand the snake was very prominent in Egyptian culture. Like on the, Pharaoh, on the hood of the, the crown of Pharaoh, war was a, a hooded cobra fanned out. Facing all the enemies of Egypt, they worshipped Ureah, the god, the snake, you know, the cobra, the spitting cobra. And so the serpent was a symbol of power, and it was thought that when Pharaoh put the crown on his head, he became a, a living god of sorts. And so God tells Moses, he says, pick up the snake by the tail, Moses. Now this is just free, but kids, if you ever try to pick up a snake, don't pick it up by the tail, because it'll bite you every time. But he says, pick up the snake by the tail. And again, Moses, who's a shepherd, ran from this snake earlier. He's seen who knows how many snakes. So we know this snake had to be fierce. Moses comes back, and in obedience, and out of faith, he picks up the snake by the tail. It turns into a staff. And what we see, that God is showing Moses and the elders and the Egyptians ultimately, that he has ultimate power, even over the power of this perceived snake that was so prominent in Egyptian culture. Then the second sign, God tells Moses to place his hand inside his cloak and then take it out. And so Moses does, and he takes it out, and his hand is leprous. Now leprosy was was rampant in the Egyptian culture, and they tried everything, throwing all kinds of resources at it in order to try to find a cure, because it was a death sentence. And God says, put it back in your cloak, and then take it out again. And he does, and his hand is restored, no longer leprous. And the God What he's showing is the God who can harm a man with leprosy, but then restore him, is the same God who can harm the nation of Egypt and restore his beloved nation, his people of Israel. And finally, God gives Moses a third sign. He says, Moses, take a cup of water from the Nile. Now, the water from the Nile, it was was the lifeblood of Egypt. The Nile and Egypt were synonymous. And They felt they drew strength from the Nile because every year some 25, 30 feet of rich soil would come into the river basin there in the desert, providing them with crops and and things to eat and livelihood. So they worshiped the Nile. So God says, scoop up a cup of water from the Nile, then I want you to pour it out, and as it hits the ground, it's going to turn into blood. Again, Moses is to do this before the Pharaoh, and so you can imagine his hesitation in thinking, okay, God... I'm a little intimidated because I'm a little like a fool if I pour this out and it stays water. Not to mention that I'm probably going to lose my life over it. But again, out of obedience and faith, Moses pours the water on the ground and it turns to blood. God is going to use Moses in an incredible way to display his power to overthrow the most powerful empire in the world at this time. What God is doing is he's asking Moses to step out in faith and humble obedience to what God is calling him to to, so that through him, he can accomplish his purposes. What is your life being defined by this morning? What are the people who are closest to you, what do they see in your life? Do they see obedience for your Savior that you profess and proclaim faith in? Is there a growing desire to live a life that is honoring and glorifying to the Lord Jesus? And are you prayerfully striving at a heart level to please the Lord out of gratitude for what He's done for you through Jesus Christ? Not that we're ever going to be perfect in this life, but that we make it our aim in everything that we do because we possess the indwelling Holy Spirit who is committed to produce holiness in us that has already been proclaimed about us. Now, if you look back on your life, and there's not a growing desire, there's not a progressive growth in holiness, no matter how small that growth is, if there's not a stumbling forward, then you have to ask yourself if you're truly a believer in Christ. Because the fruit of genuine faith is a growing in holiness a dying to sin, and living more and more under righteousness. You can imagine after these amazing signs that God gave Moses, how confident he was to take up this mission. Not exactly. Verse 10, we see that God. And Moses tells God, he says, Oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And so after God has displayed his omnipotent power through these signs that he's given to Moses, Moses shrinks back in fear. Once again, arguing his lack of eloquence as a reason why he's disqualified for carrying out God's plan. And what's interesting is that the way that Moses addresses God, he doesn't use the the word Yahweh, I am that I am, that we read about last week. He uses the Hebrew word Adonai. Adonai means master, sovereign Lord. So Moses acknowledges God to be the all-powerful God over all creation, but yet he says his lack of eloquence of speech, whatever form that manifested itself, we don't know whether it was a speech impediment or whatever, but that weakness was greater than God's strength. It's kind of ironic that Moses claims to be a poor speaker as he's arguing with the God of creation. Doesn't seem to have a hard time finding his voice before God. But God responds to Moses once again in gentleness, patient with him, reminding him in verse 11 Moses, who made your mouth? Isn't it I that made your mouth? And then he says, Go. I want you to go, Moses. I will give you the words to speak to Pharaoh and the elders. And once again, Moses responds. In verse 13, with another objection, he says, Oh, my Adonai, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. It's not me. And at this point, God gets angry. He says that his anger was kindled. God says, you've seen and you acknowledge that I am the God who is all-powerful, yet you're not trusting me to provide you with the resources to accomplish this mission. See, Moses' limitations, his inadequacies... They were a major problem and a major liability in Moses' estimation. But not so with God. Where are the places God's calling you to be obedient to Him? But you're delaying obedience or you're rejecting and neglecting action altogether. And you're using your weakness and your past failures as a justification to be disobedient to God. See, God's trying to show Moses and show us this morning we can trust his character. He's asking us the question, will you trust me? Will you trust me to be the God that I've said that I am to you? See, the evidence of our trust in God is our obedience that comes from and rests in who God is and the promises that he's made in his word and the work that has been displayed and evidenced in Jesus Christ on the cross. God doesn't say to Moses, "Go out there, Moses. Believe in yourself. You can do it. Trust your heart." And he says, "Go out there. I'm going to do it through you. I'm just asking you to be obedient and walk in faith and let me handle the results." But even in God's righteous anger, he displays that he's a God of mercy. Because in verse 14 he says, "Moses, I'm going to provide your brother Aaron to be your mouthpiece, to speak the words that I'm going to give you. See, the mercy of God understands our human weakness, and it meets us in our frailties, providing us with exactly what we need in the moment that we need it. You see what God's doing with Moses? He's trying to get Moses' attention off of himself and back onto God. See, when we wallow in the pool of self-pity because of our inadequacies, because of our fears, because of our failures... We take our eyes off of God. And some of us this morning here are miserable. We're pessimistic about life. We have a bad attitude. Feeling hopeless. Because our gaze is focused upon ourselves and our circumstances. Refocusing our gaze upon Christ will lead us to a growing desire to put off our self-loathing and our pity party for ourselves and put on a denying of ourselves and a sacrificing and serving others for the sake of God. See, there's a reason why God chose an old, fearful, runaway slave like Moses who was armed with a stick, a cup of water in his hand. Here you come Israel, Here's your leader. Not a whole lot of confidence to be put in that scenario, right? Well, the reason why God chose Moses was to display that he is the only one powerful enough to free his people from slavery. See so God calls and He saves and He uses inadequate people by displaying His power through their obedience that flows out of faith in the Lord. Next, God's covenant love for his children compels him to go to great lengths in order to rescue them and bring them back. Verse 22, God instructs Moses of what to say to Pharaoh before his presence. He says, say to the Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn. That's the first time in the scriptures that God has called Israel his firstborn, his son, he actually does twice here. And think about how encouraging that had to have felt to Moses and the Israelites to hear God call them his beloved child. God's not saying to Pharaoh, Hey, you got some property of mine, I want it back. I mean, I'd rather have them be slaves to me instead of to you. No, he says, You're my child, and I'm coming after you, and I want them back now. God is jealous for his children. There's a movie eight or ten years ago called Taken that stars Liam Neeson, who plays a former CIA operative who um, go, he actually hunted down terrorists. Well, his daughter goes over to Europe uh, to visit and to travel, and she's kidnapped while she's over there. And they are taking her and kidnapping her in order to enslave her, put her into traffic her. And so, as this kidnapping is taking place, she's on the phone with her father. And as they grab her and take her out of the room, she drops the phone, and one of the kidnappers picks up the phone. And this is what her dad tells the kidnapper He says, I don't know who you are, and I don't know what you want. If you're looking for a ransom, I can tell you I don't have any money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills skills that I've acquired over a long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you and I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you and I will put an end to you. I don't know about you, but if I'm ever taken, that's the kind of dad that I want. Who's gonna come and rescue me. Who's gonna tell my kidnapper, you have my son And I'm coming for you because I love my son that much. It's a small picture of what God's saying to his children here, Israel. And you know what that means for us? It means that if you are in Christ Jesus, you are a son or a daughter of the beloved king. Galatians 3 says, for in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. If you trust in Christ, your identity is a son or a daughter. You have claim to all that is Jesus'. You're no longer a slave to the things of this world. And so what that means is you're no longer identified by the abuse that you suffered in your past. You're no longer identified by your weight or your appearance or your grades. You're no longer identified by your social status or your failures as a father or a husband or a mother or a wife. You're the beloved firstborn of the king. If your faith is not in Christ, this is what God offers you. He's gone and he's accomplished salvation to make you his son or his daughter. He's gone to the most costly links there is, all the way to the cross, to redeem sinners and make them his beloved children. This brings us to one of the more interesting and potentially confusing passages in all of Scripture. Verse 24, we're told at lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, who's Moses' wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So while Moses is traveling from Midian to Egypt, we're told that the Lord sought to put someone to death. We're not told exactly who that was, so we don't really know who the he, him, and his is. Now, as we heard in our text, verse 25 uses Moses' name, but in the Hebrew, it says his. It doesn't say Moses. So many scholars think that it is referring to Moses that God is going to put to death because Moses neglected to circumcise his son. And because Moses is God's representative to his people, He's seeking to put him to death. But there's also other scholars who believe that the Lord is actually seeking to put uh, Gershom, Moses' son, to death. Partly because of the section that precedes what I just read speaks about the firstborn son. But no matter whether it is God seeking to put Moses or his son to death, what God is showing Moses is that he saves his people by a costly grace. See, salvation is completely free to his children. But it comes at a great cost to the Father. And what God's making abundantly clear here is that He's serious about His children's obedience to Him. Now remember the sign of circumcision that God, the uh, uh, sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham was circumcision in Genesis 17. God says, This is my covenant which you shall keep, Abraham, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And what this reveals is how God desires for his people to understand the weightiness and the costliness of sin before a holy God. See, Moses had chosen not to circumcise his son and to raise him outside of the covenant. And God was in essence saying to Moses, the only difference, Moses, between you and Egypt is me. You're not safe because you're a descendant of Abraham. You're saved because I saved you. See, there's safety, there's forgiveness, there's freedom inside the covenant with God. But outside of the covenant, there's judgment, there's separation from God, and there's ultimately death. And so Zipporah, recognizing that circumcision was the remedy, the only remedy there was to stay God's hand at murder, she immediately circumcises her son and sprinkles the blood on his feet. And then she says, Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. Again, the Hebrew word for bridegroom can either mean her, her husband, Moses, but it can also mean a covenant relative. So it could be referring to her son. But again, either way, the idea is that Moses' son has now been made part of the covenant family because of the sign of circumcision that was placed upon him. And so what stands between Moses and his family and the Egyptians is God's grace and his love. See, the principle here is clear. There's true an abiding joy when we walk with the Lord in obedience that is rooted in faith. And we have a much greater advantage than Moses did. We know the lengths that God has gone to in order to free his people from slavery to sin. And don't let the familiarity of John 3.16 get lost on you of the weight of God's love and his covenant grace that he bestows upon his people. For God so loved the world, That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. See, Christ has come. He's fulfilled the law's demands. He's ushered in this new covenant. No longer is the covenant sign circumcision. For Paul says in Colossians 2, he says, "...in him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh." By the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. See, the bloody sign of circumcision was replaced by the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross to redeem all of his children. And it is by faith alone in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone that we are saved and redeemed. Baptism, which replaces circumcision, is the covenant sign it shows that we are united by faith to the Lord Jesus and part of the covenant family. And then notice the response at the end of this passage, how Moses and Aaron, after they've given the words to the elders and the people of Israel, were told in verse 31, the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. Their response in seeing that God was the God who promised that he would be To deliver them, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. True worship flows out when you realize and you internalize God's deep and abiding love for you as His child. Only after you taste and you see the depth of God's love for you, even with all your flaws and all your shortcomings and your failures, will you then respond in greater obedience and service to the Lord. Are you inside the covenant this morning? Are you inside the covenant where there's forgiveness, where there's life, where there's freedom? Freedom to risk and stepping out in faith and doing the hard things that God calls you to because you're trusting and resting in his power to provide. Freedom to serve others and give of yourself because you know the Lord is going to meet you and provide for you what you need. And freedom to obey the commands that he's laid out for you. Because you know that is the pathway to a life of flourishing and joy. Or have you, have you forsaken your own attempts to justify yourself before a holy God and resting in the hands of Jesus? Or are you outside of the covenant where you're separated from the blessings and the love of the Father? What areas of your life are you neglecting obedience in Christ out of fear and doubt that He's not going to provide His power for you? Or is he asking you to grab the tail of the snake, so to speak, and step out in faith to trust him? Is that in a relationship that you've been cultivating, that God is calling you to share the love of Christ, that they may come to faith and believe for the first time? Is that with your finances? Lord, you see my bottom line. You know I can't be generous with what I have. I've got to use this to pay bills and survive. Grab the tail of that snake. Trust God to provide and give you everything you need so that when you see a need of your brother or your sister, you give to that need. That you consistently tie to his church to expand and continue his kingdom work to the ends of the earth. Trusting that he's going to provide everything you need. Or is it letting someone else in to help you so that you stop enabling, enabling a loved one? Or is it God's calling you to give your time to serve in the community, to volunteer at the family center, to be involved in one of our after-school programs and discovery clubs, to tutor at Highland Park Elementary that we partner with? Or is God calling you to be honest and to seek counsel about your marriage About your parenting, about your addiction, or your struggle with a particular sin. See, there may be places where we're eager to see God display his power, but we're reluctant to step out in faith to see him do so and manifest it through our lives. So instead of trying to cover our weaknesses so that they're not exposed, let us admit them and trust in a greater strength in the midst of our weakness to come through. And if we do so, God promises he will do incredible things. No, none of us in here are Moses. We may not have our name spattered about on the internet, but do incredible things in the ordinary details of life. Incredible things in your family, with your marriage, with your children. Incredible things at your work with your coworkers, your classmates at school. Incredible things with your neighbors as you engage with them, trusting God to use you, as weak as you are, to proclaim his glorious truths. See, as Paul, uh, Bob read earlier, the Apostle Paul says that we've been given this treasure, and it is indeed that a treasure, the gospel, the good news, not to show how powerful and great that we are, but we're a vessel. To show that even in our weakness, God's power can be displayed. And that he can use weak, often very unimpressive, ordinary, average people like you and me. See, we've been given another sign as well. It's the Christ Institute of the Lord's Supper. And just as with baptism, baptism doesn't save, but God has given us this supper, the Lord Jesus, so that we might have our faith strengthened upon him as we come and partake of this meal. And we do so to access the benefits of Christ's atoning work, to apply them to our lives, so that we can walk in obedience to all that he calls us to. So would you be so bold as to risk for the sake of Jesus Christ, knowing that he will provide you all the power you need to accomplish his mission that he's put in your path? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are prone to doubt and fear. Lord, I confess there are so many times when you have placed me in the path of works that you call me to do. And I shrink back in fear, just like Moses. Doubting that you will show up. Doubting the promises in your very character. And I imagine my brothers and sisters are in the same boat. And we've asked your forgiveness for that. So we ask you this morning that you would embolden us by your spirit to believe that you are who you say you are and that you've accomplished victory already and you're giving us the privilege of joining in your work to spread your good news so that the nations see and hear of the Lord Jesus Christ who rules and reigns over all creation. Would you do that here in our hearts here at Zion so that we may go out to this community that we might see revival take place we might engage in our neighborhoods, in our schools, see men and women and children come to faith in Christ. And when we see you accomplish those things, we will give you the praise and the glory that is due your name. For we know it is because of you. Lord, we ask that you would do this for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.